Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Chris and Scott, thank you so much for joining me here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. I appreciate you taking the time today. Good to be here. Our pleasure. Awesome. So this this is going to be a fun conversation on a variety of levels. Uh, one, because this is the first time I've actually done interviews with two people at the same time. So I, I hope this is a, a fun experience because we have double the knowledge being dropped. Um, and two is because we're talking about something that's not directly related to data centers. Um, the topic is telecom expense management, but yet it is related to data centers because it all ties back to and runs runs through the data center. But as a, as a point of reference here, we have Chris Core, Chris who is the CRO, Chief Res- Revenue Officer of Cost Wellness. And we have Scott Nason, who is the CIO of, Scott Wellness, uh, of Cost Wellness. Um, and gentlemen, I'll kind of let you tell the audience a little bit about what Cost Wellness is here first. Thanks, Sean. This is Chris. Cost Wellness is a boutique consultancy focused on helping large enterprises buy the optimal connectivity at the optimal price. So you can't optimize the cost of the network anymore without taking a hard look at your uh, your co-location data center facilities. As you know, and as you've interviewed a number of folks already, so at the core of the network, if you're spending a sizable amount of money, you need to be in a carrier-neutral data center. Uh, where you can buy cross connections to the circuits to get to those large trading partners and 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 connect your large sites together. So to that extent, that's where we overlap. Um, we're really about helping businesses save money, buying better services at a lower price. That, you Beautiful. Yeah, I'll, I'll build on that a little bit. Um, you know, just to add to what Chris was saying, we also put this company together to help shepherd clients through some of the migration of some of the new technologies. There's a big shift that's going on, you know, in voice and data services right now with the, you know, high adoption of uh, SIP trunking for voice, which is a dramatic shift. It's, you know, the way that things were traditionally done in the, in the voice world, moving from that, you know, that TDM uh, copper-based voice infrastructure over to IP. Um, now everything's delivered over data pipes, and they're doing away from those those copper technologies. And it's really a struggle for people because they don't really understand, you know, how exactly do you go through doing some sort of a migration 
like that. So that's one of the reasons, you know, besides optimizing for costs and helping them, you know, design connectivity as some of those network transformations, you know, we find we bring a high value in that area too. And to, to be clear, the reason why I've got Chris and Scott speaking here is through my travels and studies and the network that I have of, of experts in and around different areas of, of the data center, Chris and Scott are two of the most well-versed and experienced people that I've come across who have the experience that they have around network and specifically the, the telecom expense management space. Um, but before we kind of geek out on what the heck TEM is and how how it works with with customers and the different options that are out there, um, I'd love to hear some background from from both you guys. So, Chris, wh- where are you located now? Um, just real briefly, and then wh- where did you grow up? And then how did you first come across the world of high tech? Well, that's a great question. So, uh, I was born in '70. I'm 47 now. I'm sitting in outside of uh, Atlanta. I grew up uh, on a farm in eastern Virginia, not far from the Chesapeake Bay, uh, where technology was, uh, let's say, slow to arrive. Although, to my dad's credit, he brought me home a VIC-20, which I believe had like 6K of RAM uh, when I was 10 or 11 years old, and I was hooked. I started programming even before I could save the program. I had to type it from scratch every time just to, just to make the computer do things. Um, and uh, when I worked, uh, went to UVA, and while I was at UVA, I actually worked in the mainframe room, swapping sequential tapes back and forth. That's when I got my first ever email address. Um, and uh, from there, I went to work for Accenture, which was called something different. It was called Anderson Consulting at the time, where I did the requisite coding in Visual Basic and COBOL. Um, and just out of blind luck, I got assigned to some very large uh, Death March telco billing projects, projects that had, you know, a thousand developers on them building end-to-end systems that would bill billions of dollars in telco revenue every year. Um, I spent about seven of my nine years at Accenture doing that, going from a coder to a tester to a designer to a supervisor to a manager and so forth. Um, and that all came to a head in 2000 when uh, Bernie Evers and friends uh, fraudulently misstated earnings. Um, the telecom industry went boom. Uh, there was no money for consultants anymore. Um, and so I, uh, I dropped out of the telco side of the industry at that time. So going back a little bit, though, when your dad brought home that VIC-20, first of all, for those of us who, who weren't born until long, long after those devices uh, came out, what, what is a VIC-20? And what was your dad involved with that had him think to himself, I should really get one of these PCs and, and bring them home? Um, so VIC-20 was, um, a very, very low-end consumer-grade, uh, PC. It didn't do very much, um, but it was in color, which was a differentiator at that time from the Apple IIe's, which didn't have color, uh, or, um, I forget what else we used to use in school in those days when we were coding in logo, uh, or basic, um, and I think my dad was, um, like a lot of small businessmen, he was always looking for ways to get onto uh, something new and interesting. Um, you know, his primary success was in building construction, but he was always trying different things like becoming a VIC-20 or a Commodore computer dealer. Um, so 
he did that for a short period of time. That's why I was able to get one to play with. Gotcha. Interesting. So Scott, what was your, you know, where, where are you located? And then how did you kind of get up and, and rolling in the IT world? Yeah, so I'm in Greenville, South Carolina now. Um, I was born and raised in um, just inside of Detroit, Michigan. There's a little town called Highland Park that sits right in the center of Detroit. Detroit is a, is a wagon wheel, and inside of it is a town called Highland Park. I was born and raised there. Um, when I graduated, I moved over to Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is on the west side of the state. And um, I was a contractor for uh, what was then um, Ameritech. And so Ameritech, the, the telephone company, had a series of contractors. I was one of them. And I did um, wiring up and building um, central offices. So where all the connectivity came back for all residences and businesses called a central office or a CO, um, big giant uh, brick buildings with no windows, um, high power redundancy, bomb proof, you know, um, thick concrete walls, impenetrable. So I was responsible for building out and wiring those central offices. From there, I went into... Um, installing and programming PBXs. Um, so those are large telephone systems that fit inside enterprise businesses. So um, when I went into that, I did that for about five years and um, was on, a, on an account one day for a company called Siemens. I was installing one of their uh, telephone systems that lasted a while, and they, and they said to me, hey, we really like what you're doing. We would like you to come and uh, come on board with Siemens, which is one of the largest um, conglomerates in the world at that time it was, um, in, the, in the Fortune 10. So um, went on board with Siemens as basically a uh, telecom manager, worked my way up through the ranks there, they have a management track that you go through there. And on the technology side, um, they had a company called Siemens Business Services, which basically provided all of the um, shared services for all the Siemens operating companies in North America. And so I was put in charge of a team that negotiated all of the telecom contracts for all the Siemens operating companies in North America. And what that involved in was getting um, all of the operating companies. And, and at that time, um, Siemens bought and sold something like between three and 500 different companies a year. Some of them large, some of them small. But what it involved was getting all of those people together annually, all of my peers at all of those operating companies together, and... Uh, working with them on how they buy their hardware, how they buy their, their software that runs their systems, um, who they're buying their connectivity from, and, and local, long distance, and back then it was calling cards and things of that nature. And we would then bring all of that together and negotiate corporate-wide contracts that then everybody would share it. So that's how I got into 
kind of more of the strategic view versus the tactical view. Uh, prior to that, I was all tactical. Um, and that was my first taste of, of doing things strategically for a whole enterprise. Gotcha. Um, so, so real quick, Scott, two questions going back. Um, yeah. First of all, what does PBX actually stand for? PBX is a proprietary branch exchange. And what that is, is basically it's the central office. Inside of the central office, there is a telephone system. And um, that runs everything for like a small city or a town or something like that. Those CO um, telephone systems, when enterprises started to need those types of systems, um, when they migrated from Ma Bell selling them the phone and all of the services and features that go with it, something called Centrex, that was the way things were done. When enterprises said, you know, we want to control this ourselves, we want our own system, they had to have their own branch exchange. So they put, um, they took a, uh, a scaled down version of the telephone systems that exist in in the central offices and built it for um, enterprises. And so when that came along, I was I was working in kind of wiring up the central offices, so I was familiar with those types of systems. So I went into into that side of it. Gotcha. And then backing up, when you were growing up in Detroit, did you have a similar experience as Chris and Ironically, myself, where, where my dad actually brought me home a computer and said, figure this thing out and teach me teach me what this thing is? Or how did you first come across computers and tech? No. So um, I did not have that same experience. Um, my parents were much older when they had me. Um, I was kind of a, an oops child. And um, we were very low income. So I didn't get a computer until I was in my um, mid-20s and I went to work for Siemens. So I didn't have any experience with computers, although I had a lot of uh, technology experience. It was all on the voice side, all on the traditional telephony side. And at that point, um, we we didn't have to use computers to program telephone systems. Um, there were basic interfaces to a phone system to be able to program it, bring it up, you know. And so my first uh, PC was when I went to work for Siemens. And when I went, when I went to work for Siemens as their, their, you know, one of their telecom directors, I had actually had to have their IT staff come in and explain everything about Windows, um, at that point, I mean, we were just going from DOS over to Windows, so I learned a lot about DOS. Um, and then they had to explain everything about Windows and how it was, what it was, why it worked the way it did. Uh, and so I relied on them to teach me. I didn't get anything at home or growing up. And then um, I had a fascination with computers, started building computers. And um, <laughs> one of the things that drove that fascination was gaming. I, I'm, I was a gamer, still am a gamer. And 
So then my fascination with computers and how everything gets connected um, kind of came together with my love of gaming. So, you know, I still build custom computers right now. Um, and one of the things that kind of ties that together is when you look at online gaming and how that's evolved now, I can really understand all of the architecture that drives and supports all of those types of systems. So um, that's how I got involved in a, from a technology side, in the uh, personal computer side. Gotcha. How about from the, the basic network education that you got? Did you go to a technical university? Where, where'd you get the basics of the cabling and, and fiber and, and all that? I taught myself everything I know. So um, anything that we had to do, we had to teach ourselves how to do, or you learned it um, coming up through the ranks. And as I um, went from installing um, or connecting, uh, you know, different types of wires and connections in the central office, I taught myself how to do that. You started just pulling cable and then you sat and watched somebody and how they did the connections in the central office. And then they would take you out, show you where it went, a pedestal on a street, and then where it went into a building, and then where it went into the building, where it connected out to an actual desk. So you learned how to do all of those connections um, by watching somebody and then doing it yourself. Do it, you know, repetitiously a few hundred thousand times. And then you're able to design those types of networks. And then when I went to work for Siemens, that helped me understanding you know, how all this connectivity comes together, everything from a color code that is still in use today, blue, orange, green, brown, slate, is drilled into my mind. That is the basic color code that runs all of the connectivity for copper-based services. Now you have fiber, and when I got halfway through that, I was, I was into, you know, building out fiber networks and splicing fiber, and, and that helped me actually then design networks. And what I do today, part of what I do is actually helping to design high availability networks for healthcare systems. So I've got a really nice advantage, I feel, when we're looking at and talking to customers about cost optimization and design elements and things of that nature in that I didn't learn it from a book. I learned it by actually doing it. So I, I feel like that was invaluable. And while I didn't get the education from, from college, uh, I feel like, you know, the education that I had was probably better. Yeah. And what's funny is with all the interviews that I've been doing and the conversations that I have, you know, no two people clearly have the same exact background, but they all have a common theme in that people have, you know, didn't go to a specific school or university for a specific degree that they've then spent their whole career working in or on. Um, people have taken it upon themselves to go educate themselves and, and learn on the job and, and have those experiences, which I think lends credence to, um, you know, those who are listening, there's, there's no one path or route into our space. You just have to be passionate enough to take the time to find those who can teach you and, you know, become a, an apprentice of sorts and learn while doing. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully you're not uh, working on such a large system that, um, if you screw it up, you're going to cause massive damage. <laughs> it happens. So we won't, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we won't talk about that because that happens. <laughs> hey, Sean, I'd like to give a shout out and, um, and reflect on a very similar story. So um, I've always been very thrift oriented, 
you can uh, you can probably get an earful from my wife about me constantly looking for ways to get better value for money. But that was drilled into me early, just growing up with on a farm where there was there was a lot of land, but not much cash. And when I was 23 years old, so I've been working in the consulting world a couple of years now, I decided I wanted to have a computer of my own. Um, and at the time, the Pentium wasn't even out yet. This is 1993. And I want to give a shout out to two guys who worked at MCI at the time. These were my clients, uh, a guy named James Seymour, who introduced me to Linux. And uh, his boss, who was my actual client, a guy named Wes Kale, who was a brilliant technologist and a former Special Forces operator and just a fantastic human being that I regret I've lost, lost touch with. But those two guys, uh, actually, James Seymour took me to one of the traveling computer uh, hardware shows at a convention center. He told me about how much money to bring. I think it was probably like 800 bucks at the time. We bought a motherboard. We bought a case. We, or I bought. He told me what to get. I bought a 486. And he hung in there, a hard drive, and he hung in there with me and, and helped me paste it all together and install Windows on it. And uh, we put Windows on it, not Linux. Linux was not that useful in 1993. Um, but I loved it because I really felt like I had learned something essential and fundamental. And that, had, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of experience has carried me through my career. Yeah, I think we all have similar experiences. The the two people that really blew my mind, Richard Donaldson, who was the very first person I interviewed on the podcast, um, and Pete Sclafani, who I think was the third or fourth person who I interviewed on the podcast. Both of them really sat me down and taught me the soup to nuts. You know, Pete, for example, taught me how a computer works from a binary level. You know, if you were to build a computer from the ground up, how the heck would you do it? Um, and what makes it work um, fundamentally? And that was... It was very eye-opening, um, to say the least. And I'm sure Scott, you've got a similar story of a handful of folks who have kind of mentored you through the through the uh, through your professional career. And that's that is exactly why, if you read the intro to my book or the shout out at the very beginning of my book, the Data Center Location Industry Playbook, I I dedicate the whole book to those those individuals, right? Because it takes those people who are willing to invest the time um, to educate and teach people on what they've learned over the years. And I think you know. That's one of the beautiful things about our industry is information, you know, tends not to be hoarded as to how all this stuff works. Um, and I've come to appreciate the the people who embrace that, uh, that open mindset, open source mindset of wanting to try to train and educate as many people as they can around them. So with that on the table, gentlemen, uh, hopefully the, the, our, our, our listening audience has a, respect for the backgrounds that you guys have. I'd love to start digging into what the heck TEM is. And I think people have heard the term frequently. I heard it throughout the industry and telecom expense management sounds somewhat straightforward, but I know that there's a lot of nuance within it. And I'd love for you guys to kind of give a, a story around how did you get involved in TEM? What the heck is TEM? And what is, you know, what is the nuance that makes things a little bit more complicated than just looking at a couple spreadsheets and looking at a couple contracts and, and renegotiating those things. Chris, you want to take the first volley at this? Because I know you've got more experience on the actual evolution of the temp. That's the side you came from. Okay, um, so telecom expense management is essentially a, a job function within any enterprise of any scale that 
somebody has to bring together the different disciplines around managing the recurring IT spend. And there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm a former CFO. I left that part out. But it's really, uh, it's a recurring managed service that you're paying for. You could think of it as a lease. Um, but the, the, um, the, the fabulously quirky thing about telecom is it's absolutely essential. Everybody needs to be connected. There's immense value created from it. But yet, when it was developed for the first you know, 100 years from 1886 to 1986, it was completely optimized around performance and engineering, not around simplicity and usability and product structures. So, um, so, so it has this this hundred year heritage of being incredibly archaic and complicated, convoluted, and difficult to understand, and yet at the same time being absolutely essential. And those two things together mean that in an enterprise, there's often an attitude of just get the bill paid. Just if if you if we could just get the bill paid. And maybe even get it allocated right to the effective right business unit in a sensible way. That's a victory because that means we're not going to get stunning notices. We're not going to get disconnected, and our, you know, our, our our payment cards. You know, we can still take credit cards at the at the branch because we didn't forget to pay the bill, or the bill didn't get sent to the wrong place. So, as I mentioned, I started with nine years on the on the billing side at the source of the problem. And I saw the immense amount of logistics and complexity that telcos have to go through to try to produce an accurate bill. And there's a lot of business strategy wrapped up in a bill um, because, by and large, people perceive the services themselves to be commodities. And so how you differentiate is very much encapsulated in the invoice itself. And so there's a lot of uh, what you might call (coughs) innovation that's happened around telecom billing in the last 20 or 30 years. And it has only added to the complexity, not reduced it. Um, And so um, I'm worried I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but the, 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 in the interest of not making this a 12 hour podcast on TEM, let me get to the point. TEM is the function by which you manage everything you have and how much it costs. And it's first what you have, not what it costs. So the, the evolution of the TEM business, TEM industry, really started for most enterprises around outsourcing invoice processing to make sure the bills got paid. But even 15 years ago, I was listening to directors at places like Citibank say, you know, I thought I needed to know what I was spending, but really I need to know what I have. And so Scott and I spend a lot of time with clients trying to figure out their inventory of services, their inventory of contracts, their inventory of assets that they have before we worry about what they're paying for. Because if you don't know what you've got, you know, looking at what you're paying for is kind of irrelevant. I'll pause there for a moment. So that's that's a key point. But how how do you get around for those on the network side, for example? Um, when they're talking to a customer who, when you bring up that topic of, you know, do you have an inventory of what you currently have in place? They're like, yeah, yeah, we have that. Right. So what, you know, it seems like, well, most companies so should customers have often have, sorry to me spoke over you, but customers often have a network inventory from a, a hardware perspective. They have a list of routers that are in service, but very few of them have taken the time to maintain the telco circuit IDs that serve those equipment that are mapped into that equipment. So their, their inventory is often quite incomplete. 
or uh, and 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 or if they if you ask them, are you doing 100 percent your line item match on your invoice every month? Very few of them are. Even the ones that have spent millions of dollars on uh, TEM systems, because it requires care and feeding. You've got to have somebody who cares about what you have and how much it costs, and having different people who care about those two different things uh, always leads to trouble. You've got to have somebody who cares about both what you have and how much it costs. So I think we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this. Um, I've, I don't think I know we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this as the conversation evolves, but I have a an underlying question related to Tim that I'd love to get both of your feedback on. Um, but how, how does Tim specifically take into consideration or hold a service provider accountable to quality of service and or a service level agreement that the service provider has offered offered the client and or does TEM take that into consideration? It absolutely does. Um, in a fairly mature, um, from a CMM capability maturity model kind of mature environment, what you'll have is you'll have your, your network monitoring tools that create uh, incidents and you either automatically based on criteria or manually based on knowledge of the, the network operations team, as you hit outages, you log those in your TEM system as a ticket with the details on there. Those get routed via a workflow to the billing analyst who know the contract and who can then log a dispute with the carrier tied to that. And they that's an open workflow item. As a best practice, that stays an open workflow item that's reported in monthly or quarterly uh, vendor report report cards, and it stays open until you see the credit on the invoice for that outage. That's the short answer. Now, how many environments are really that mature? Um, you know, certainly fewer than half or less than half. So, looking at TEM as it exists today, one must take into consideration kind of where where it's evolved from. Um, is there any insight you can give us as to how TEM has evolved from basically probably just a couple of spreadsheets tracking items to, to where it is today. Yeah. Why don't you start that one off and I'll, uh, if I have anything to add, I will. Yeah. And again, you know, Chris, you know, having, you know, been one of the you know early founders of you know, a large, you know, and complex TEM company, you would have better insight onto the, the evolution on, on the product side. From the client side, and this is kind of my history. I've, um, you know, I've been a consultant for close to 15 years now, and one of the things that we've always done is look at Tem as not just a uh, either a, a piece of software that's running on a server in your data center, which was the way that it started out, and was its in its early phases or a platform that you're buying. Um, it's a series of processes that exist within your environment, and that involves people, the processes that they use, procedures that they follow, and the technology. And so you have to have all three of those pieces in place. And to Chris's point, I'll, I'll use the term he used earlier, to be able to have a mature you know, telecom expense management system in place. So when you look at it and you look at, you know, the, what a system is, you have to have everything from how you order services, um, 
how you provision services, how they get installed, when they get installed, how that ties to your contract, and then how that ties to your billing and your audit and dispute management, and all the way through to your reporting on the back end to be able to say, okay, uh, I'm doing my bill payment, and here's how much my, my run rate is, and here's how it bumps up against my budget. Now, all of those things could be handled a multitude of different ways. In a very, in a, maybe a smaller, less mature environment, it may be a series of online databases that, that you may keep, spreadsheets, or somebody just okaying a bill, rubber stamping it, passing it, that bill actually through to accounts payable, and maybe doing a bill review just based on the way it looks from you know, last month, and if there was any noticeable variance just to the human eye. In a highly mature TEM environment, and this is the evolution of TEM, you've got a fast-paced platform that people are using and utilizing. It gets an electronic feed from the carrier, EDI. Um, it gets the bill into it. It does an automatic check of tolerances, audit dispute management check of, of tolerance of what the bill was. Any disputes get kicked out for somebody to, you know, a human to actually then chase down and resolve. And then it sends an electronic file over to um, accounts payable, and the AP system picks that up and pays the bill. So you look at several different kind of, and, and that was very high, very broad brushstrokes, but you look at it, there's a, there's a basic fundamental um, place that you have to start with, and that's getting your bills, auditing your bills, and paying your bills. And that is telecom expense management at its most rudimentary level. And when is, you look at it, at, is yeah, Tim, real quick, is Tim... I mean, for those who are listening, is TEM applicable to anybody that has a circuit anywhere, or is there a specific size or complexity where really the ROI and it really starts to make sense? Well, anybody, oh. anywhere, if you're managing and watching your bills, you're going to get an ROI. Um, it, you know, the, the telecoms and the carriers um, have different rules and regulations that they abide by and that they go by for billing and when they're going to raise rates and how they raise rates based off tariffs and how those things happen. And they're not necessarily communicated efficiently to, to the end users. You know? So there's this place where you've got anybody, anywhere, I don't care if you're paying $1,000 a month or $10 million a month, there is some sort of an ROI on it. And arguably, it might be more important to the folks who are paying $1,000 a month because you know, that's real money to a small budget. Now, that's not something that we would get involved in. That's not something that you would bring guys like Chris and me in, um, but it still should be looked at. We get involved in things that are you know, in that higher level because then you look at complex processes and procedures that make up a true telecom expense management, you know, ecosphere. Uh, Sean, it, to give the audience some free rules of thumb, I, I use the following. Um, a very a reasonably detail-oriented person working part-time can keep their handle on a 
it's somewhere between two and twelve million in annual telecom spend. That's my experience. What I mean by that is, if the if the environment is relatively dynamic, there's M and A going on, and uh, or you know network transformation, what have you, a spreadsheet's going to fall apart at about two million in spend. If it's a really relatively staid environment, it's not very dynamic, then a spreadsheet can keep track of things up to about twelve million in spend. But somewhere above twelve million, it's a no-brainer. You need automated platform software to help coordinate all the different workflows involved. Um, but th- those are sorts of that, to me. That's a, the rule of thumb. And does that mean like full-time job for that one person up to two, two to twelve, or is that like you know as needed checking the spreadsheet? Um, most of the industry is, to some extent, uh, managed service driven, meaning there's a, a, an outsourced component. Um, so I would strongly look at some kind of help, um, you know, in that two to twelve million. Again, depending on how dynamic you are. Hey, Chris, I would I would add one more component to your rule of thumb: uh, the high variability in that two to twelve million is how many invoices you actually get. Because right. you the number of have, carriers as well. Yeah, you could have, you know, somebody who's ten million in spend, but you've got, you know, you get a bill every month for a million dollars, or you get several bills for a million dollars. Or you could have somebody on the other side of it. You could have somebody who's got five million or seven million in spend and they get, you know, three hundred and fifty or four hundred or five hundred bills. And so that becomes unmanageable when you look at the number of bills that you actually get. That's a variable a variable inside of there that we also look at, and that's a metric that we track. How much is a spend? How many locations? Are you centralized or decentralized in your payment scheme? And how many invoices do you actually get? All right, so you're getting at the, I know this is a, a sales-free zone, but you're getting at the core of the kind of consulting we do every day now. I don't know. That's It's all quality information for people on both the buy side and sell side to kind of take note. Um, so Chris, with your experience having worked for a Tem company, how, you know, to, to what Scott kind of tried to lob back on your, on your plate, <laughs> how have you seen the technology and the software evolve over the last decade, two decades? Well, I think it's uh, the, the, the variability, honestly, there's new entrants every quarter. I run across tiny little temp companies all the time. There's a new one that's got two people in it it's out of Canada. They do a pretty good job with mobile only in Canada. You know, it's very limited, but you know, there there's still new entrants coming to market. I don't know exactly why because there's a lot of good mature players out there. Um, I think the the number of platforms at the high end is going down very gradually. Um, you know, at the high end of the market, the largest platform provider is a roll-up of 15 different companies and has at least three or four platforms that they're still offering to the market, not to mention the old ones that they still sustain, that they're not selling anymore, but they're still using in the delivery of services to customer. But it's it's gradually maturing. I mean, there's been a bloodbath of acquisition and, and consolidation over the past five years uh, that I've seen both as an outsider and an insider. Um, but the thing that gives me the most hope, um, because there's, frankly, there's just a lot of disappointment out there. A lot of people have been sold things, um, 
you know, at a certain price, they negotiated the price down and then they didn't get the thing that they thought they were buying. They got something less than that. And when you have services, you can kind of tailor the service level to the, uh, to the price available. It's not an engineered service level. It's a, uh, it's a custom service level based on the price that customers paying. So it's sort of, so what I see that's uh, a really positive trend in the industry is the unbundling of TEM software and TEM services. And to me, this is absolutely essential. And if you're an enterprise buyer, you should definitely consider this. Um, and the reason why is uh, platforms are very sticky. You build interfaces from your TEM platform to other, um, to other platforms. I, I worked with one of the largest retailers on earth, and we put in place uh, 60 different interfaces to the TEM system that we deployed for them at the time. That makes the, the platform immensely sticky. And they like the platform, but they weren't always happy with the services. And so what I strongly recommend to most customers is even if you buy TEM software and TEM services from the same provider, do two separate entitlements because the, the, the term commitment is necessary on the platform side, but it's not on the services side. You can buy your services from anyone, and your services contract, frankly, ought to have a 30-day out clause. If you're not happy with the service, you move on. And, and the reason for this is not new. It goes back it's as old as the, uh, you know, some of the other examples we were given. I remember when I first started in IT, somebody told me, you, no company can be excellent at both software and services. And, and nobody, and it's still true today. It's different cultures, it's different career pathing, it's different skill sets. And so we strongly recommend considering unbundling. Get your platform, lock that in, and then hire one or more service providers to do the work on it. As, as uh, one of my mentors said to me, if I don't like my CPA, I don't kick out SAP and put Oracle Financials in. I just hire a new CPA. And it's just the metaphor applies identically to them. Hey, Chris, um, um, this kind of building on something that Sean just said, because we were talking about the evolution, and you went down one side of the evolution path. I think another important side of the evolution path of Tim to go down is kind of how we see those platforms um, kind of morphing into different service areas and where we think that's going. So one of the things that, that I see is a lot of the, there is a lot of consolidation, Chris, you mentioned this earlier, there's a lot of consolidation in in the temp space right now. A lot of, you know, mid or smaller size uh, temp providers are, are getting bought up by larger ones. Um, but what I see from, you know, my side of it is when they became a SaaS based platform, meaning it resides in the cloud, they have this, this infrastructure to be able to work from, and they decided kind of holistically, and, and maybe, you know, it, it grew organically within the different temp providers, but everybody now wants to do more with the existing platform. If it can manage my telecom expense management manage, uh, services, can it manage my cloud services? Can it manage assets? Can it manage office supplies? What can I do with this, with this platform? That was driven a lot from, I think, clients saying, we, we use it for telecom. Can we use it for a couple of other things that are, that are just like it? And then the, the providers saying, yeah, I have this. I've got this investment in it. 
we want to do more. What's the logical progression path to be able to do more with it? So we're seeing uh, a lot of the different, um, you know, SaaS providers of it saying, okay, we're going to make a very broad, open uh, platform to be able to do a multitude of things and manage a multitude of different services. They do have some niche players that are just saying, we're going to stick to this one thing and, the, and only this one thing, mobility, for example, as Chris mentioned earlier. But Chris, do you see the same thing and do you see it the same way I do, that, that really kind of the big evolution now in telecom expense management is them trying to do more with this fast-based platform? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes, Scott. And it's, it's being driven by a broader market force, which is everybody, every vendor is looking to, in IT, are looking, they're all looking to telecom as a model to follow for how to create margin in a commodity world. Or, and the, some of the software companies are, are brilliant at this. Um, Salesforce.com jumps to mind and, and uh, ServiceNow to a certain extent as well. Um, and what I mean by that is they are, um, in, so to the extent that other categories of spend behave like telecom does traditionally and need, thus need to be managed like telecom traditionally, um, the, yes, Scott's absolutely right. The, there are more and more categories coming in. So if you, if you reduce a phone bill down to its essence, you have recurring charges, non-recurring charges, and usage charges. And if you look at, uh, and, and then there's tiered and threshold pricing within that, and what that can manifest itself as is a certain fixed entitlement for monthly cost and then overage charges, which anybody who's seen a mobile bill in the last 20 years can relate to. Um, and the, the point of reducing it to assessments is if you apply that very simple construct of recurring, non-recurring usage with fixed entitlements and overages or tiered and threshold pricing, you can model almost any IT uh, product into that. And so you see phenomena where, oh, I'm spending half a million a year on Salesforce, um, and I'm allocating it back to the various teams that use it, sales here, marketing there, uh, channel sales, et cetera. And all of a sudden you realize, uh, because Salesforce sends you an invoice, that there's this uh, overage charge, that there's a certain data entitlement, and if you exceed that, you have to pay a hefty overage charge. And what do you know, uh, the teams have been storing a bunch of contract images on Salesforce, and your half a million dollar bill is accompanied by an eight hundred thousand dollar surcharge. This was a story shared with a shared to me uh, shared with me by a CIO not long ago. So my point is of giving that example is um, you got to keep an eye on all of these categories. You've got to know what you have. You got to have an inventory. You've got to be careful and controlled in how you order more of it, which is the order management or procurement or provisioning process. You've got to, you know, be mindful of your volumes when you're negotiating contracts because there's always a lower unit price available uh, for additional committed volume. And so absolutely, yes, these are, to me, the business drivers of why what Scott said is absolutely true, that, that you have these solutions in place, and to the extent that other categories behave in this way, they're a great fit. They're often a great fit for managing those categories. It's an interesting um, conversation because I've heard it from the other side where I, I talk to equipment um, vendors that are, are doing uh, 
management of all the different devices and the SKUs of those devices and the uh, expected um, end dates, end of life dates for those for those servers or the RAM inside the server, whatever it might be. Um, and more and more, those companies who were doing that cataloging are not charging for you know a per device license. What they want is you leveraging the platform so that you will then choose to purchase more infrastructure through their platform. And that's where they make their money. So they're almost giving away the software so that they have you in their ecosystem procuring more infrastructure through their platform. And to the point that you guys have been making, adding TEM into that seems like a no-brainer. Uh, I'm surprised that we haven't heard of more companies kind of purchasing across those lines, right? So like how it is and why it is that the, the infrastructure um, tracking software companies that have those platforms are not looking to procure TEM companies or vice versa. Um, or maybe they have been. It's just a world that I haven't focused too much attention on. But uh, Chris, you've been void of using names of companies, and I'm curious if if it's um, if it's worth you throwing out, you know, some of the names of the big dogs that have been in the industry and kind of have a dominant space or place in in the industry. Sure. Well, um, Scott, just like with you and me, man, there's nothing more important than relationships, and I got a lot of friends who work in a lot of places, and I would. Um, I would like them to still be my friends when this podcast airs. Um, but, um, you know, the um, TEM industry, as a result of consolidation, so I'll try to be purely fact-based, and if anybody yells at me, I guess I'll them a fear. The TEM industry has gone through a massive consolidation. Um, I actually have uh, a graphic uh, that I will share with you. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. It shows, you know, just many dozens of companies consolidating down into a small handful. Um, but from a, a platform perspective, um, the biggest player, I believe, is still Tango, T-A-N-G-O-E. Um, they are a roll-up now of about 15 different companies. They just completed the acquisition of a company named A Sentinel, which was a roll-up of three different companies. Um so that took them from 12 to 15. I might be off by one or two, um, but it, it'll be in the picture that I send you. Um, next up is uh, Calero. Calero is a roll-up of three or four. was originally formed as a roll-up of three different companies. Um, I have heard it on pretty good authority that they are looking to make um, many, many, many more acquisitions as soon as possible to gain scale. Um, and so those are the two sort of... Uh, Hertz and Avis of the uh, TEM business. Um, and then um, in the in the service provider only category, there are, are dozens, but most of the service providers that I'm aware of have some kind of a loyalty. So uh, a company I don't, I just ran across them recently, but they're here in Atlanta called Vatic uh, is an A-Sentinel partner. Now they're a Tango partner. I don't know how they feel about that. Like I said, I haven't met them. Uh, but then you've got a really interesting model with a company called Two Markets, and that's a company that I've known for a time. They were I was their customer uh, when I was at IBM. They did a lot of work for me uh, at that time, so I know that they do good work. But their their model is uh, bring your own TEM software. So they're an example of this uh, unbundling concept. I believe they call it Bust the Bundle. Um, so uh, those are some. Uh, the first two most people in the industry would have heard of or everyone would have heard of. 
Um, but as I said, there's more and more of them springing up uh, all the time. Um, and um, so those are some names. Is that, is that what you're looking for? Yeah, no, that was good. Um, oh, and- uh, uh, sorry, I would be remiss if I didn't mention at least one other. Um, uh, again, I have friends, and I don't want to get yelled at. Uh, and that's uh, GSG. GSG is an interesting company because they started as an outsourcing company doing work for the TEM providers. And again, I was their customer at Rivermine back in the day. Um, and then over time, they built their own platform, and now they're trying to make the shift from being mostly services to mostly software. So that's an ambitious shift, but I think they're uh, I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. Scott, are there any I might have missed that you want to include? No, I think you you covered the gamut of the ones that we come across on the regular. Like you said, there's more popping up all the time. Right. All the all the big players have a TEM offering. So, for example, IBM, you can buy a TEM powered by GSG. Uh, Dimension Data actually bought a fairly well-respected company called Zygo, formerly Invoice Insight. And so Dimension Data has that offering. Um, Accenture uses three or four different platforms, depending on whether it's fixed or mobile, whether you're in the U.S. or overseas. Um, I actually worked in the TIM industry overseas for a couple of years. So if anybody has very detailed questions about how to buy TIM services in EMEA or Europe or uh, or Asia, let me know. Uh, but I'll spare the audience that abstruse detail. Um, and so um, you can buy it from anyone. Pomeroy used to resell GSG. Pomeroy got bought by a private equity that owned Calero. Now they sell Calero. Um, you know, there, there are many, many, many partnerships. But at the at, at, on the platform level, it's, you know, Tango has three or four platforms. GSG has one platform. It's pretty strong. Uh, and then there are the others I mentioned. So you, you made a comment that I wrote down as you were saying it because it resonated, but um, the comment that no or no company can be great or, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult for a company to be great at both software and services. If you don't like your CPA, you don't change your backend accounting software or platform, you hire a new CPA. Um, yeah, I with, believe that with, with all my heart. <laughs> with, with, with the consolidation that's occurring in the industry, do you think that that's driven by true product? development needs or is it driven by um you know investors wanting to simply have an exit um and move on to the next and i i asked because of the obvious consolidation that's going on in the data center industry and a lot of private equity money that's coming in where um i see similar similar things occurring in the hosting and data center space where there's a lot of consolidation occurring um acquisitions occurring uh, mergers occurring and I still, to this day, uh, I'm not completely sold that the reason why these mergers and acquisitions are occurring is because they're truly looking out for the best interests of the employees and the clients and trying to develop a better product set. Um, my my feeling is that a lot of these are still simply driven by, well, if we attach this with this in a couple of years and maintain a certain amount of growth, we can then flip it for a, a much larger multiple than what we just bought bought that company or merged with that company for um has the temps i guess here's the the root of the question other than my rant is the the tem environment and the different platforms that you've mentioned have they been inundated yet with that short-term private equity mindset or are they still driven by product and software um needs and i guess you know you're probably 
going to give me the typical consultant response, which is, it depends. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'll give, all right. So yeah. Okay. It depends a little, but I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, um, private equity is the, is the tail that's wagging the dog right now. Although I'm a, I'm a finance guy at heart. So maybe it's the dog that's wagging the tail, right? It's, there, there's been immense, immense value created by this industry by giving tools and performing services to help customers manage things they were doing a crappy job of managing before. I mean, the, meaning no disrespect to my customers and my peers and all the people who've taught me everything I know, as I said earlier, um, you know, Tim in the enterprise rarely uh, is sort of a destination that attracts the best and brightest. It often att- attracts people who are very hardworking and have an en- enormous pain tolerance. Um, and that's kind of how I came into it, right? Because I was checking phone bills for the carriers for a while. It didn't require any particular brilliance on my part. It just took uh, the kind of pain tolerance that comes from getting up at two in the morning to fix barbed wire fences on the farm. Um, so the point is, um, you know, the, the value created has been immense. The profits generated have by and large, been fairly limited. Um, and I think that, that private equity is, is going to now try somehow to capture some value in an industry that traditionally hasn't uh, has created value for customers but not captured much value for um, you know, the owners or workers, frankly, of the industry itself. Um, you know, there's, there's some outliers to that that are to the positive, Um, And they generally involve something or, you know, in the contingency audit business or the telecom brokerage side of the business. But, you know, so, yeah, I think private equity is is focused primarily on profitability. Um, But there's there. The the truth of the matter is most of the functionality that I see, uh, and I'm going to sound like the the bitter Betamax coder here. But um, most of the functionality that I see is being touted as new and innovative. We had that in the Rivermind platform eight or nine years ago. It was just hard to get people to adopt it, or maybe we wrote it in such a way that it wasn't easily adoptable. But it was there. We were doing it with some customers. It was just difficult to get you know, the level of sophistication on the part of the user to really adhere to the, to the methodology and to do it. So the market has caught up with that now. And, and there, I, there's, um, there's differentiation. You know, among the platforms and reporting and and um, sort of usability, look and feel, but the fundamental construct of what a TEM system should do, I don't see it changing that much, other than supporting additional products, which we already talked about at some length. But again, that's not coding updates; that's just updating reference data. So, Scott, I've got a question for you. In your experience working with customers and clients. Is there a scenario within a company um, that's kind of the flip side where it, at face value, it might look like an opportunity where they're spending ten million annually, um, but once you you've got yourself involved with that organization, you realize that you don't want to touch this thing with a ten foot pole. Well, you know, there's a lot of them that most consultants wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole. Um, that's I think where where Chris and I are different from a lot of the rest is that that's our specialty is the larger, more complex, more um, screwed up it is, 
and the, the, the more maybe unwilling a client is to be able to see it, um, that's where we specialize. So we're very good. Me coming from the client side, I've worked you know, at Siemens for a decade, and, and we were doing this and listening to uh, salespeople try and sell us on why their stuff was the best and you know, giving every objection that we, I possibly could to it and you know, kind of rooting out what was good about what they were selling. Um, I sat on that side. So when I'm sitting across from a CIO um, or a CTO, you know, I've been there. So there's a lot of systems. And when I say systems, I mean um, businesses, whether that's banking and finance, manufacturing, um, insurance, or healthcare. There's a lot of systems, businesses that when you walk into them and you peek, you know, underneath the hood, you know, things are really messed up and they don't know where to start. That's part of the problem is it's so messed up and it's been so messed up for so long, they don't know where to start. So while they may be daunting and it may you know, take a lot of diligence and to, to Chris's point earlier, we, both Chris and I have a pretty high pain tolerance you have to go in and do it. And you have to be able to say, here's the path forward. Here's why it makes sense. You may spend money now to get us in here and get us to do this, but you're going to save 10x in the long run. So Can you speak, I haven't, speak to a case study, like a tangible case study in the somewhat recent future where, you know, by any accounts, you could see a lot of people looking at the situation saying this is way too, 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 many, too much politics involved or too much of a cluster for me to really want to sink my teeth into this, but you stepped in. Yeah. So everyone, so let's, let's throw out the politics, the bureaucracy that goes with it. Cause every client that I walk into, there is varying degrees of, of that piece. So you have to be able to, if you're going to be good at what you do and be effective, you've got to be able to navigate those waters. You have to be able to cut through that and get done what you need to get done. And there's, you know, there's specific methodologies and techniques that, you know, uh, both Chris and I use that have been honed over, you know, each of us a quarter century of doing this to be able to make that happen. I think one of the things that separates us and looking at it, I've done um, some of the largest banks in the world, uh, some of the largest healthcare facilities in the country, um, and I worked at one of the largest conglomerates. So complexity is usually the most daunting thing for people inside the, the organization and consultants walking into it. Um, and so, you know, I, I've done banks where, you know, you've got 10,000 different locations that you have to figure out how you get the bills for, how you get the the services for, how you get that all mapped correctly, and how you get them a system that's going to work. Same thing with healthcare. That's a place that we specialize in, um, not by any um, you know certain choice of focus, but it just grew that way organically. Um, when you walk into a large healthcare where you really have to have your A-game on, because these are high availability networks that you're dealing with and they, they involve patient care. 
and you're designing a new network that works with and within a telecom expense management infrastructure, because remember I talked earlier that telecom expense management isn't just managing bills. It's how you set up circuits, services, and infrastructure to be able to grow within contracts and be managed. So when you look at it, I think it's complexity that maybe drives the, the limiter or drives up that, you know, that fear factor for most people that they, they do or they don't want to deal with. Can I add something? Yeah, feel free. Please, yeah. Um, so, Sean, I think you had, when you originally asked the question, where my mind went was a little bit different. I agree with everything Scott just said, of course, but it, it, you asked, I think it was sort of uh, recent examples and tied to the question of, is there anybody you wouldn't work with? And there are some things, there is something that I have a real, I have a real soapbox, I tend to get on a soapbox about, and it, it's, it's about perverse incentives. And it's bothered me for years because I come out of the CFO or the, the finance role into IT, and I just, I don't know if it's, you know, there's a rumor that corporate finance people also aren't the brightest tools in the shed. Um, I don't, so I don't know if, they, if it's malicious or just ignorant, but I run into clients all the time whose internal incentives are set up in a way to make people want to do the wrong thing. And I'll give you a, a very concrete example that Scott and I ran into about a year ago, but I've run into this example. It, it used to be more common. I think it's largely been addressed. But um, so let's just go back to our basic, uh, you know, finance 101 or 201 training. Is it better to have more cash or less cash? More. It's better to have more. It, it, it uh, depends. Have, <laughs> right. I'm joking. Uh, most businesses, yeah, thanks, consultant. Um, most businesses want more cash or spend less cash. And is it better to, uh, to have it now or in the future? It's better to have it now. And so any reasonable, rational uh, incentive structure, and I'm talking about the MBOs that govern the employees that we work with, but also the contingency contracts that we often operate under. It's better to save as much money as possible as soon as possible. And yet, and I kid you not, I ran into a client not that long ago whose stated policy was that all cost savings measured were zero, zeroed out and rebaselined on January 1 of the following year. So if you did nine months of work, to save a million dollars a month, and you did that between February and November, let's let's say you did let's say it cost three million dollars. Would you would you do three million dollars to save a million a month? Well, hell yeah. Actually, I do it for a million a year. That's a thirty three percent ROI. That's a very high MPV, no matter what your cap on for any reasonable cap rate in the zero interest rate world. So, yet this company had this policy. And what it said, what they said was, well, if we start this project now and the savings kick in in October, we're going to have to rebaseline, and we won't get any savings after the first couple of months. I mean, that's idiocy. You should want. To, so what they're essentially saying is, let's start the project in a few months so that the savings don't kick in until next January, because then they won't be rebaselined until the following January. I mean, that is that is the classic example of an incentive on employees and contractors to do the wrong thing. Um, so how, and our industry how would, an incentive, is, how would an incentive such as that even come into place? Like, I, I don't even understand 
what the pro of having that kind of a policy would be. I don't either, honestly. I'm sure it had something to do with um, having short windows of ROI or not. Count. I'm, I'm sure they were they were trying to, you know, solve some other problem with this crazy tool. Um, but but I uh, I would encourage your listeners to be on the lookout for these perverse incentives and and look for examples of smart financial projects that would have gotten approved or would they would have put forth but for some crazy internal measuring stick uh that caused them to realize eh, that's 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 not how we do things around here even though it's the right thing to do um and and it there's a there's the the classic example in the in the bad old days of tim kind of as i was getting into the industry i became aware of this that we didn't do it this way but uh we we had to sell against it was um you know doing an annualized savings guarantee to say, hey, you're going to pay, uh, let's pick a reasonable number. You've got $20 million in spend. We're going to do full outsourcing. It's going to be 30000 a month for full outsourcing. That's $360,000 a year. And we're going to guarantee that we find that in savings every year. So over three years, that's about a million bucks, a little more than that. 360 times three is a little over a million bucks. Well, if you're the service provider, do you want if if you're the customer? Do you want them to find the million annually in year one, or do you want them to find four hundred in year one and four hundred in year two and four hundred in year three? Well, duh! You want them to find as much savings as possible as quickly as possible. So don't write the contract in a way that means they have they that they have to wait to get credit for it later. Because you know what will happen if you write it that way? They're going to wait to get credit for it later. Um, so as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this because it's just it's lunacy, uh, and yet it's epidemic in our industry, or it was it, epidemic. It's, it's it's less common now, thankfully. CFOs that you're having 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 to have these conversations with, or is it the IT departments that are just kind of following the the mandates from the the financial office? More the latter. I mean, you don't you know you don't have to read the Phoenix Project more than once to realize that. Finance and IT don't always uh, understand each other very well. Um, they often have preconceived notions about the intelligence level of the other, um, and they may both be right. I don't know, but the point is um, that they—I I think it's more that finance is trying to um, rationalize what may seem like outlandish ROIs that maybe never get attained. Now that's another problem, which is. You get projects that are uh, funded based on an ROI, but often there's very little accountability in the organization for whether that ROI is actually attained. And that this may be finance's best defense that they can come up with, but I got better defenses than that. You know, there's ways of measuring success that don't involve, you know, crazy stuff like I'm talking about. Well, that goes back to the whole conversation that we had initially around people, process, and technology is required for a mature temp system and it's not just a mature temp system it's a mature accountability system in general right yeah um, yes that's exactly right just look at the short-term roi and say okay great let's move forward without knowing well how are we going to be tracking roi on an ongoing basis who's going to be doing the tracking who's accountable for it um and it's it's always been an interesting uh conundrum for me as i've moved from being an entrepreneur 
into corporate America and working with large enterprise customers, how, um, how lacking in accountability there are even within large, large and larger institutions um, and how much time is spent by individuals kind of covering, covering their ass and trying to prevent the accountability from taking place within the institution or the organization. Well, and it's leadership, right? I mean, leadership is ideally is you set a goal and you enable people to work together to attain that goal. And so, um, I don't know who said it originally, but I think John F. Kennedy gets credit for um, uh, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat, but defeat is an orphan. You know, you if if you win, and I think, and my point is, I think a lot of times you get. Uh, in uh, what my friend Bill calls urinary Olympics over who's responsible for the success. It doesn't matter. When you have success, we're all responsible. It's when you, it, it, it's avoiding failure that we should all be focused on. Um, but you're right. I mean, politics is a reality, especially in this day and age. Um, so on the positive side, we have toolkits and methodologies for measuring things properly, and we put those in our contracts. Uh, and we're happy to guarantee an outcome uh, as long as we see the data uh, first. We're not going to go willy-nilly into a client promising an outcome before we know anything about them. That would also be dumb, although I do know competitors who will do that. Um, but um, we we are happy to guarantee an outcome and be paid as a result of an outcome as opposed to a process uh, if we can take a look at the data beforehand. So you bring up one of the next points that I wanted to talk, and this is going to be a great segue. Um, Scott, if you want to chime in, how do people like you doing what you're doing, consulting around Tem, what is the economic model for, for you guys? How are you paid for the work that you do? Well, I think um, there's really two ways to look at it. When you look at it from a contingency or a gain share basis, or you look at it from professional services. Um, the interesting thing is I've been in doing this long enough. I've seen the pendulum swing. Um from one side back to the other and back to now the one I'm just going to share. So originally when I got into this, everybody uh, in the early 90s, everybody was doing uh, contingency. So they would be paid off of a percentage of the savings. And a lot of consultants got very, very rich doing that. Um, once that whole thing was discovered that, you know, these guys were driving around in you know, seven series BMWs um, off, you know, 50% contingency rates, things started to swing the other way and they worked more towards professional services or uh, paid engagement for a set of deliverables or an end result. Um, the pendulum swung back and is now there's a hybrid that is happening and we're seeing that there's contingency with a with a guarantee in it. Um, but just lately, now I'm seeing the pendulum swing back to professional services. And this is a lot of the consultants actually driving the bus on this because contingency has been driven down so far that you really can't, um, in a lot of cases, it's hard for you to cover your costs on doing it. There's a very... Um, you have to put up a lot of uh, money up front in labor and you usually get paid, um, you know, when the 
savings are proved out. Now, I know there's a bunch of different ways to work around that, but this is in, just in general. So what we're trying to work towards, Chris and I, um, is more towards professional services engagements for a set of deliverables or a result. When you look at telecom expense management, um, sometimes there is a piece that is a pure savings that you can measure, but there's also tremendous value that is brought based off process, uh, procedure, tools, sustainability, and things that can't be measured or you can't be paid on from a contingency basis. So we're looking at it as saying, okay, if you want us to re uh, design and develop your telecom expense management ecosphere within your organization. It's really a combination of professional services and then helping you uh, select your platform, plat- platform agnostic. So we don't we don't care who you bring to it. Um, as Chris said, they, we we advocate a uh, differentiator between the platform you select and the professional services that get laid on top of it, because that's really, in my opinion, where a lot of the magic happens is those people who actually interact with the system. So that was a lot of context around saying that we're looking more towards a professional services set of fees for a predictable outcome. So we go in, say, okay, here's what we believe needs to be done. Based off our experience, we can pretty much size up any size um, engagement be able to tell you what needs to be done, how long it's going to take, what, where you're going to get your savings from, and where we're going to um, implement new process, procedure, and sustainability initiatives. So that's the way that we're looking at it, is professional services will help select the platform provider. So the, the contingency aspect is no longer a primary staple in terms of how you guys are engaging? I don't see it as... I don't see it as a very good tool to be able to measure the value that you bring. Two things happen in a contingency engagement. Um, One, you track your cost savings. And like I said earlier, you can't measure all of the additional value things that you're bringing, which actually create the sustainable, workable um, ecosphere. And more importantly, one, the percentage that you can get in a contingency engagement has gotten so low now that it's diff- difficult for you to cover your costs. Secondarily, if your contingency, not meaning the percentage, but the amount that you get, and these can be- get pretty big if you're working on, you know, a 20, 30, 40, 60 million dollar in spend across an annual basis, and you are saving you know, 10%, 15%, something like that. It becomes a negotiation at the back end with the customer about what you're actually going to get. The rules that you agreed on at the beginning don't necessarily apply. So, in order to, and so then that creates a really bad ongoing relationship. And so what we prefer to do is to say, listen, here's what we're going to do. Here's how much you're going to pay us. Here's what the outcome is going to be. And then we're going to go on and do the next thing for you. 
And we feel like that is a much better recipe. That's right. The, and the, the, the rule of thumb is with, often with contingency, it's impossible for both parties to be happy, which is the, the goal of commerce is to have an arm's length transaction where the buyer and seller both get something out of it and they both walk away happy. And that's our goal for our client. And either we do a ton of work and we make, you know, $6,000 and we're, you know, eating rice and beans for the next six months, or we do uh, what in the customer's view, a modest amount of work and they owe us $600,000 and they think we're, you know, ludicrous and we end up in an antagonistic relationship that way. In the end, I don't want an antagonistic relationship with my clients. I want a positive relationship where they feel comfortable recommending me to a friend or colleague. And so that's the main, uh, that's the main argument against it. Do we do it? Of course, you know, it's just a, it's a function of the industry, but we, we try to avoid it. If we can. Yeah. And on our end, and I think we had this conversation a couple of weeks back. Um, I, I am yet to come across an engagement with a customer where there's that much spend on the table and that much savings that we know can be achieved where when we're dealing with a percentage of savings achieved as our, our means of being compensated for our labor, there is not a contentious relationship uh, that almost instantly is formed when we explain to them how much in savings we're going to be able to bring to the table. Because they do that right, math, then right? they suddenly yeah, then they don't want to play ball with you anymore. Then you're not a team anymore, and then it's no right. fun. And they start thinking, right. well, you're I wonder how much we can save if we just kept it internally, because then we wouldn't have to pay you. Yeah, and we could either right. bang our head exactly. against the wall and say, yeah, but you, you know, we're dealing with percentages of savings that haven't even been achieved yet. Um, and our right. goal and role is to bring value to the table that you cannot bring based on our experience doing this, and yet people still will make the choice internally to not want to engage because they're just so afraid of having to cut such a big check, even though they've saved even, you know, 10 X um, or in right. some cases, 20 X. Right. So, and then you yes. get another, you get a perverse incentive that I was alluding to earlier because they're afraid, Oh, you save that much. It, it makes me look like I wasn't doing a very good job before. Right. Um, and that, and that actually is a reasonable argument on the part of some clients where they say, why should I pay you so much more just because our environment is so much more messed up? It's not because you're more of a genius. It's just because we have more problems. I mean, I'll never forget I did a, um, a wireless optimization for a brewing company. And we found like 70% savings on a wireless optimization. It was nuts. Well, that's not because we're geniuses. It's because they were terrible at managing it. They were doing nothing to manage it, and the vendor was gouging them. So. You know, why should we make a premium to do that work is the argument clients make. And I say, you're absolutely right. Let's just do this on a fixed fee basis or on a, you know, with some kind of savings guarantee to make sure that we actually show up and do the work at all. You know, but it's, there's, there's, there's ways of getting around that um, to preserve the relationship. Yeah. So, gentlemen, as it relates to Tim, we've kind of covered how the industry has evolved a little bit over the years, um, what the root causes of, of the need for some sort of a TEM relationship is. Um, we've covered your backgrounds. We, we've covered a lot as it relates to this topic. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think we should cover? Interesting question. I mean, there's a, a couple of things we could get into. I mean, uh, one thing that jumps to mind is um, Will Rogers, I think, said uh, if a good deal seems too good to be due, it too good to be true, it probably is. Um, in the 10 business, what this means is 
Um, just being mindful or aware of where vendors are making money that you're not paying them. And there's nothing wrong with that model. Um, you know, we don't necessarily think that's a bad model, uh, but it should be uh, open. There is one uh, player in the TEM industry who has been, uh, in my view, mysteriously undercutting the rest of the industry. And it just became clear to me, maybe I was the rube uh, who wasn't getting it uh, recently, that they are owned by a bank. And the way that they were making, the reason they could charge so little for the, the competing services was because they were making a ton of money on the side doing uh, credit card processing. Um, meaning they were paying the customer's bills and, and capturing all the credit card rebates, the 1% cash back. And if you're in a big TEM deal, you may only pay 30, 40 basis points, so three to four tenths of a percent. So if you're also getting uh, an additional one to two percent from the credit card, you know, that's a huge advantage. Um, so kudos to those guys for figuring out because they're a bank. But um, just be my advice to customers is just try to be mindful of uh, uh, what other revenues the player may be earning on uh, on your spend. Scott, anything on your your side of the fence? You know, I think probably the only thing we didn't cover off off on are, you know, are there any barriers to entry? Why wouldn't they do it, or why would they, you know, find a reason to say that we don't want to manage our expenses? Um, strange as that may sound, and you come up with a lot of those arguments of saying, okay, there's either we've got too many projects in the pipeline, um, and we don't have enough resources, we don't even have enough resources to help you guys, we don't know how to get started. All of those types of arguments, um, and our response to that is, you know, any good consultant, this goes for any type of consultant, actually, um, should know your business as good or better than the client knows it. And I don't mean by that each individual business. So you may not know the nuances of client X, but you should know all of the nuances of industry X. So you should be able to walk into any engagement understanding what all of the risks, barriers, and hurdles that you're going to run into and be able to adequately explain why there's still value there in doing it. So, for example, the resource argument is one that I run into on probably a high 90% of all of our engagements. We don't have, we don't have the time and we don't have the uh, manpower to be able to, to take this on. And so you know, our answer is any consultant should be able to come in get spun up quickly and run autonomously or at least semi-autonomously going to your point of contact only for sanity checks, governance, reporting, status checks, those types of things. So I think, you know, being able to mitigate or eliminate those barriers to entry on any type of project are very important that you're able to, you know, when on the client side, you're able to look at it objectively and say, is this not just from cost savings perspective in telecom expense management, you know, world, um, but from process improvement, quality of life for your people, 
um, sustainability, those types of things. You've got to look at those things as well. And from the consulting side, if you're a consultant doing this or a platform provider doing it, you've got to walk in and be able to say, look, we've got the answers to these problems. We've done it before. Here's how we do it. Here's why it's unobtrusive to you or those types of things. So that's what I would say from something we didn't cover off on. It's appreciated. I, I had asked you why does you wouldn't choose to engage with a customer, but addressing why a customer uh, in their mind would choose not to engage is also extremely relevant. Um, so can I add one more thing on that? Um, anything we didn't cover? Yeah, for sure. So um, I love saving you a buck, man, because when I save you a buck, that's a buck, right? That's a buck you didn't have or a buck you were going to waste or spend on something unnecessarily. But there's a point of amplification that I'm really excited about, um, almost as excited as I know you are about data centers. And that's about helping customers build connectivity into their product. And so the, there's two obvious examples that jump to my mind of clients we've worked with. Number one is any client who's selling a SaaS solution or an information-enabled solution, if they can if we can take a look at their cloud spend, their colo spend, and their connectivity spend, we can create margin. If we create margin, we give them the more pricing flexibility. And I've been a finance guy, I've been a sales guy, and the thing that I want from my finance guys is pricing flexibility. So if I have pricing flexibility, then I can do more deals, then I can have more revenue and more profit. So, so connectivity enabled, and then the big one that everybody's thinking about, the buzzword nowadays, it's IoT. You're taking formerly done things and information enabling them. And so if, if any of you guys out there are looking at IoT-related connectivity, it really, really makes sense to engage someone like us who looks at these contracts all day, every day. Because, again, if you have a bit, even a small cost advantage on your cost of goods sold for these information-enabled products, uh, it can amplify itself into huge gains in a competitive situation. Yeah, you've you've nailed um, an extremely important conversation there, which is why more and more of the clients that we're working with are the hosting providers themselves, because they've started to realize with the dozens of contracts that they've signed with service providers around the world, hosting services, um, they have not gone about in, in the very recent future renegotiating a lot of those contracts and re-looking at what is market in the marketplace today and when there is such steep competition in that place in that marketplace there you know that pricing flexibility is becoming more and more important um, and we can almost tell those providers who are going to make it in the long run versus those who are not based on how they address that simple question you know, are they even looking at their cost of infrastructure or are they simply trying to crank as much revenue as possible with the opportunity to flip and sell down the road or, or in the near future? Well, gentlemen, I have a couple concluding questions here that uh, I ask everybody on the podcast. And the first is, is there a word of advice that you would give either yourself when you first started out or someone new. Um, you know, if you have a nephew, let's say, who's graduating college and they're looking at getting into 
the technology, information technology industry, you know, what words of advice would you give? What would you give them? Chris, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Sure. Um, I'll give you the last word there. Uh, so I would, uh, hearkening back to how we started, uh, Scott running wires and wire centers and me building my own 486, I would encourage everyone, uh, if you're interested in a technology, get it, get dirty with it. Get down into it. Get the get the nuts and bolts of it understood because there's as you get the as you get the details as you, as you get down into the nitty gritty, the higher order, in, more interesting conclusions will come as a result. Um, and when you're young, uh, you often have a hard time uh, getting credibility. People don't always listen to you when you're young. But if you are the guy who's actually fixing stuff with with a screwdriver or with dirty hands. Uh, you have instant credibility. Um, that's the advice I think I would share. Great and I think advice. Hunter Newby on the podcast, you know, he was the sales guy who who couldn't figure out why his circuits weren't getting provisioned. So he went down to uh, the data center in New York to figure out why. And kind of the rest is history. Yep. He wasn't afraid to go get dirty to solve the problem for his customer. Pat, what do you think? I think probably my advice is the same advice I give to everybody um, is don't be afraid to be an entrepreneur. Don't be afraid to be out on your own. Um, you know, people always think that there's more security being in a large corporate job and that entrepreneurship is very scary and there's no safety net. My experience has been that exactly reverse of that. Um, I drive my own destiny. I make what I want to make. I make my own safety net. That's predictable. Um, so there's a lot more safety and security on the entrepreneur side than you would think. And in my experience, there's less on the corporate side than you would think. So, you know, coming from a guy who, you know, spent a, um, a decade at one company and, you know, six years at another. I've only had two jobs in my life and I've been an entrepreneur the rest of it. Um, I would say going out on your own from the very beginning um, is the path that I would coach most people to look at doing. I think it inspires more creativity and uh, you've got a chance to make a bigger impact. There's a, uh, along those lines, there's a quote that I have on my desk in my home office um, that says, Entrepreneur sh- an entrepreneur is someone who decides to live uh, a number of years of their life like most people refuse to live the rest of their life like most people can't. Um, and it kind of speaks to that. You know, the first, at least for me and for most entrepreneurs that I know, the first couple of years are pretty daunting. Um, waking up not knowing really how you're going to feed your family or support the roof over your head. Um, but if you can make it through those first couple of years and get your feet underneath you to your point, it's, it's extremely freeing. You can determine and dictate the terms by which you, you play. And it kind of goes right back into the comment that I just made around who we want to work with and who we prefer to work with and who we try to work with on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, it's, it's a certain mentality of a client that we, that we prefer to work with someone who actually values and respects 
um, what we do and who in turn understands that we value and respect what they do. It's not just a transaction, it's a relationship. Um, uh, so one of the other related question questions I have is what is the most influential piece of advice that you received when you were starting out? That may have you know changed your thought process or thought explosion. You know, we talked about Chris, you spoke with a couple of the individuals that greatly impacted you, but what was a piece of advice in that process, maybe from those individuals or others that kind of shaped the way that you went about your career? I'm going to let Scott go first on this one while I give some more thought to that question. Yeah, I, I don't, I can't reflect back on any one singular piece of advice that I got. This is more of a a trend that I've seen in the mentors that I've selected and the people that I've had the good fortune of being close to and associated with, and that is don't be afraid of hard work and don't be afraid of putting in long hours, working off hours, and doing the time that you need to do to get the experience that you need to get. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that I've seen in the people around me that I choose to surround myself with is work ethic. So really concentrate on your work ethic and be willing and be able to outwork everybody else because you could be the smartest person or you could not be the smartest person and your success isn't driven by either one of those things, but it is driven by your work ethic. And that's the one thing that the piece of advice that I'd give and, you know, the most influential thing that I've seen is people are, are just willing to work incredibly hard to get where they want to be or what they want to get. Beautiful. Love it. Okay. I got something. So first one's from my grandfather. He said, what people aren't up on, they're down on, which I took to mean um, if you don't take the time to let people know what you're doing and help them to understand it, um, they're going to poo-poo it. They're going to be against it. So what people aren't up on, they're down on. Um, from my dad, I learned... As soon as two people team up to screw a third person, they almost inevitably end up screwing each other. So it was a it was a lesson in in sort of ethical conduct that it uh, I guess if you're going to try to pull pull a fast one, do it alone. Is maybe I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant don't do that. But but he said you know just watch you'll you'll see a couple of people think they're going to pull a fast one on somebody, and then they'll end up at each other's throats within a year. Um, and so I've seen that play out again and again. So, um, the last one's more pragmatic. Um, not long after the book came out, somebody recommended the book to me, Getting Things Done, GTD. And I have been uh, an avid GTDer for 16 years now, since 2001. Um, and it's really helped me a lot because it, I won't get into it. There's a, you go Google GTD, you'll get a, like a trillion hits. Uh, you can figure it out for yourself, but it, it's about essentially about integrity, keeping commitments to yourself first, and therefore, and if, until you can, 
you know, they say that only the disciplined are truly free. Until you can start keeping commitments to yourself, uh, you can never hope to, to keep commitments to others. And GTC is an enabling tool for that. It's, that's such a great one. I think those last two resonated with me deeply as I've seen people who went about systematically screwing over people within two years, screwing each other over. Um, and then the whole thing about accountability is something that I speak to my friends who are considering getting married, <laughs> you know, from a personal level, how are you going to be, be able to keep a lifetime commitment with someone if you can't even keep any commitments with yourself at this point in life? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's uh, something very practical on both the professional and personal side of life. Um, well, the last question I have for you too, and thank you so much for your time. This has been actually very thought provoking for me and, and educational for me, hopefully it was for the people listening. But the last question I have is, do you, and we didn't even, I don't think we, if you listen back, I don't, I don't wonder how many times we actually use the word data center. I think we, we may not have even mentioned it once outside of the very beginning, but do you guys love data centers? And as much as you can't optimize the network without optimizing your data center, I love data centers. (laughs) I love that answer. Yeah, from my perspective, you know, data centers are the future. That's where everything is going. So you can't help but love them. Amen. Well, Chris, Scott, thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know our listeners will appreciate the, the knowledge that you've dumped on them. and. I will be speaking with both of you guys sometime in the very near future. And and for those who are listening that want to get a hold of either of you, let, Scott, you can go first. What's the easiest and best way for someone to reach you if they want to learn more or, or contact you online? Yeah, I think the, the best way is to go to our website, um, costwellness.com. And it's a place where you can see all the information about not only Cost Wellness, but about us. And there's information on how to contact us as well. It'd be up on LinkedIn, but uh, I don't use Twitter except as a voyeur. So, uh, yeah, go to our website, Cost Wellness, C-O-S-T, Wellness, all one word. All right, folks. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Chris. And have a beautiful day. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.